Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So as I spoke about last night, the um, kind of the, the main focus of, of this practice is for insight, is vipassana. And I spoke a little bit about, um, about vipassana, about what insight is, and um, spoke about insight as being um, an intuitive knowing without using thought, an intuitive knowing of the inner nature of things. And to be a little bit more specific even than that, it's, it's knowing the, the inner nature of things in a way that, in a way that there's a, there's a real a deep and experiential knowing of how things are that, that allow for a very different way of seeing and knowing and understanding that frees us from our habitual patterns and our conditioned reactions to life. So the outcome of the insight is said to be freedom or liberation or insight. And so the, the, the practices, the sitting, the walking, and the standing, the, the, all, the, all the practices based on mindfulness have as an intention the paying attention in a way that we begin to really deeply see and feel how things actually are. So this is the this is the, the main focus and I'll, I'll go into this a little bit more. I wanna I wanna go a little bit into more into the insight aspect. So then yesterday we also introduced this meta practice, the practice of, of metta, of friendliness, of kindness. And I'd like to speak a little bit about, a little bit more about the metta practice, and I'd like to also speak about the relationship of the two, because they are quite different practices, the one being very experiential and very body-oriented and very, uh, very much non-conceptual, non-verbal, and then the metta practice, using words, using concepts, um, using mind, sometimes even using mind to, to actually visualize the person who you're connecting with through the metta. So two apparently very different practices, but very much, very much connected, very related to each other, 
and very supportive of each other. And so I'd like to explore this also and do all this um, in less than 45 minutes. <laughs> so the, the, the metta, I'd like to, uh, like to begin, there was, uh, there was a news story that maybe some of you heard yesterday morning, and it was, um, it was a kind of story that I really wish the media would, it's, it's the kind of thing that's happening all the time, and I wish the media would pick up more on this kind of story and put this on the front page of the newspapers with as a balance to all the all the terrible things happening in this world, but um, maybe uh, maybe some of you know this story. Um, on on Wednesday evening there was a baseball game, and the pitcher was um, I, I forget the teams and I forget the players, but anyway the um, the pitcher had was on his way to a perfect game, nobody getting any runs, nobody getting on base. And he, um, he had struck out, um, how many? There's nine innings, three to an inning, 27. He had struck out 26 people consecutively. 27th and last person was up. First two pitches were strikes. He's down to the last pitch. He throws the pitch. The guy taps it. It goes dribbling out in the field. One of the players in the field picks it up, throws it to first base, Meanwhile, the batter is running to first base. He gets to first base. The umpire says, safe. And there goes the perfect game. Everybody else said, out. The video replay said, out. The rule in baseball is once once the umpire makes a call, nothing changes it. The guy lost his perfect game. And as, as one of the commentators said, he lost his place in history. After the game, the umpire did what I thought was a very courageous thing. He came out and made a public statement. He said, I was wrong. I made a mistake. And he expressed his regrets and, and apologized and very sincerely. And, um, and, and you could tell from, from hearing him that he was, he was really shaken really shaken by it. And then the player was interviewed. The, the, the pitcher was interviewed. And the pitcher said, I really feel sorry for him. He's got to live with that. He said, I play. I know the rules. I know that once the call is made, that's it. And I live with that. I live with knowing those are the rules. But I feel so sorry for him, and I wish I could meet with him to talk to him and tell him it's okay. And I thought that was just such a wonderful example of metta. Just, just, it's just so outstanding. And and I, I find it hard to believe that beneath it, he wasn't feeling hurt, angry, um, <laughs> well, you can imagine the whole range of, of feelings and emotions that could be going through him. But to be able to to be able to to move through all that, and to be able to say, "It's okay," I want you to know that this this is real metta. This is this is what metta is. Metta is this it's this this opening of the heart, in a way that it allows us to move through, to move through, not to deny, not to suppress, 
but to move through our likes and our dislikes so that metta isn't coming from a place of liking or disliking. It's simply coming from a place of friendship. And I also want to make the point that, and, and I think an important point with metta, and, and, and particularly, and, and these comments I think relate particularly when we come to metta with someone who we have difficulty with or an unfriendly person. And, and I think it's, the, the, the way that I see it, and I, and I think it's a, I think it's a, a good, a skillful way of, of approaching it, is to see that f- friendliness is not the same as being friends. And so we can, we can manifest metta to someone. We can express a wish for someone's well-being, someone's happiness, without feeling that, well, that means I have to be their friend. Don't have to be their friend. In fact, I don't think it even means we have to like the person. It's going beyond that. It's not getting, not getting caught in that habit of mind and habit of heart, that habit of heart that so easily closes us off. So metta is very much this quality of being able to open the heart, to express friendship, to to know to know relationship to know connection even in the presence of not liking even in the presence of struggle of difficulty and in the in the in the, the way that we generally in the west practice metta um, this is this is the the focus of the practice the focus of the practice is this opening of the heart, this establishing of connection, this sincere wish that goes beyond liking and disliking, sincere wish for the well-being of others as well as ourselves. The more traditional use of the practice of metta is as a concentration practice. And when we when we look at metta in the in the suttas, when, when we look at the places where metta comes up in the suttas, and when we look at places where metta comes up in the commentaries, it most commonly comes up, not always, but most commonly comes up in relation to cultivating, developing concentration. And and um, it's it's rather a, pu- a peculiar thing because when we think of concentration, and particularly in the context of meditation, the usual approach to concentration, and, and often often the approach to concentration is when I sit down and I say, okay, pay attention to my breathing, one of the first thoughts is that, well, that means I should only be at- attentive to my breathing, and I should just be able to stay with my breathing and not be distracted. And we see that the reality is the mind does... <laughs> get distracted, and there's a gap between what I feel should be happening and what's actually happening, and the reaction to that is, no, I shouldn't be doing that, I should be that, and just using willpower, using force to pull the attention back 
to the breathing and to try to hold it there. <laughs> with the idea that this is how I get concentrated and if I don't get concentration I can't meditate. So because concentration is based on this willpower. It's based on this, this, um, this forcing, this striving. It's based on struggle. The Buddha spoke of a different kind of concentration. He spoke of concentration as being right concentration, proper concentration, skillful concentration. And, and this right concentration, this skillful concentration, he presents, as, as I'm, I'm sure you're all aware, I, mean, I spoke last night about the challenge of being in a group with who I don't know anyone. And one of the challenges is that I don't really know what you've studied already and what you, what you know. So if I repeat things that you know and you say, oh, I've heard that before, um, I'd like to encourage you just to recognize that habit <laughs> and just kind of perk up and pay attention anyway. <laughs> so so right, right concentration, skillful concentration, is, is, is very different. And... The difference is that skillful concentration has as its foundation a couple of very specific qualities. And one of those qualities is openness or spaciousness. Usually with concentration, we think of closing down on, tightening on. But right concentration actually has spaciousness as as an underlying condition for it. It also has, as an underlying condition for it, happiness. Happiness is a condition. So next time you're trying to get concentrated, just check in and see how much happiness is there here. So happiness and spaciousness as conditions, as preconditions, as conditions for the arising of concentration and, and I would say that one condition that underlies even those is a condition of being interested, of really being interested. And we can see that when we're, when we're really interested, we can look at our own experience and we can see when we're really interested in something, we have lots of energy, we have enjoyment, we have openness, and we have very naturally, without making any effort, concentration. We get focused on whatever it is. The focusing on whatever we're paying attention to just naturally happens. And this is right concentration. And so as well as checking how much happiness is there here, check and see how much interest is there really here. How interested am I in this breath? How interested am I really in the experience of this moment of outbreath? This 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 quality of interest is is so important. And so the 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 with 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 the meta practice, the repetition of phrases, a couple of things that it does, a couple of ways that it works as a as as a practice for concentration. One, one is that through the repetition of the phrases, and this is why it's 
useful to have just three or four phrases and have short phrases. The repetition of the phrases, once you know them well enough that you don't have to try to remember them, you don't have to think about them, you can just keep rhyming them off, is that they displace all other thoughts from the mind. The phrases displace all other thoughts. And so the tendency to wander off, to drift off, to get caught up in stories, just falls away. And just that in itself begins to focus the attention. And the other thing that it does, hopefully, and this is very much related to the first aspect of the, uh, that I spoke about of the metta practice, is that it brings what I like, I like to um, refer to as gladness of the heart. It brings that opening of the heart, and it brings a gla- the gladness that comes when we feel the happiness that we feel when our hearts are open and we feel connected and, and, and we have that sense of well-being for ourselves and others. There's a real gladness and a happiness that comes with that. And so that, that happiness and the displacing of all the discursive thoughts together brings up the concentration. And so these, these, these two, the concentration aspect and the opening of the heart aspect, are very much related. And it works the other way, too, because the more we get focused on something, the more concentration we have with something, with the, with the openness, the more the heart opens. And so these, these, two, these two very much interact and very much affect one another. And how that relates to the insight. The, um, the, the value, one of, one of the values, one of the values of both the concentration aspect and the opening of the heart aspect is that these become conditions that allow us to stay present. They become conditions that allow us to stay present. And so, giving attention to the breathing, mindfulness of the breathing, feeling breath coming in, breath going out. It can be very boring, <laughs> uninteresting, difficult. But when, that, when the concentration comes and the, the attention just stays at rest with it and supported by and with and supporting each other, the openness then, and, and again underlying that, the interest, then we can stay present with the breathing. In fact, with these qualities, we can stay present with anything, with whatever is presenting to us. Insight being the understanding of the inner nature of things. To understand the inner nature of things even to understand the outer nature of things, we have to pay attention to them. Whatever it is we want to understand, we have to pay attention to it. We have to give it attention. We have to be open to it. And we have to be open to it to understand how it is. We have to be open to it as it is. Which means, if we're trying to change it, if it's that pain in the knee and I'm trying to make it better, 
or get rid of it or get my attention to go somewhere else, then we're not allowing ourselves the opportunity to know it as it is. What we're doing is to re- is reacting to how we remember it was a moment before. And similarly, if I recognize something I want to get, the very trying to get something is taking me away from what is, from the fact of not having it, and how that feels, and how I am with that. And so the the metta and the concentration allow us to stay present with what is so that we can really open to it as it is. And so the metta becomes a very important part of the practice. To cultivate that that openness of heart, to cultivate that openness of heart that allows us to stay open, to stay present, and, and in that staying open, letting go of any preconceived ideas, past associations, past beliefs, letting go of that, really being open, then there's the possibility of understanding in a way that this insight comes. And then there's a possibility of the insight truly freeing us from our habits and our conditioned reactions. The Buddha spoke about dukkha, and I'm going to assume, maybe it's a wrong assumption, but I'm going to assume that by now you're all familiar with this word dukkha. And that you all know that it means much more than just suffering. <laughs> okay, yes, I see heads shaking, good. <laughs> I think Michael's very good at putting that across. <laughs> so the Buddha, the, the Buddha, the, 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 Buddha, the, Buddha taught, the Buddha taught about Dukkha and the ending of Dukkha. And the ending of dukkha, the ending of dukkha lies in the insight. The ending of dukkha lies in this insight into the inner nature of things, how things actually are. And, um, and it's really important. Um, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we forget and we think that all the Buddha taught was about dukkha. And we look in our practice and we think, oh, all this is about is dukkha. It's just about sitting here and feeling my dukkha. And, and I could do this anywhere. Why do I have to do this sitting here or standing here or walking here? So the, 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 the practice, and particularly when we can bring in the metta, it allows us to open to the dukkha. And, and the Buddha in, in the First Noble Truth, and here I'm assuming again that you're familiar with the Four Noble Truths. Yes? Okay? So the First Noble Truth is we experience dukkha. And it's not just 
a statement we experience dukkha. It's an invitation for us to open to that and to really allow ourselves, not just to intellectually know, yes, I experienced dukkha, but to open to our actual experience of it. And by opening to our actual experience of it, we can begin to get a sense of, by opening to it and by staying with it, we can start to get a sense of what's causing it, what's underlying our dukkha. And, um, and so we can see our, our tendency when we're experiencing dukkha is to find a cause for it. And usually we find a cause out there. And then the, uh, the, the resolution of it is, well, if I can just change that cause, if I can get rid of that thing that's bugging me, or if I can get that thing that I want. <coughs> and there are, of course, inner, we can point to inner causes as well. Um, that pain in my knee, that pain in my back, that, um, that terrible mind state that I have, Whatever it is, we can point to that and somehow we kind of separate ourselves from it. I'm feeling dukkha because of that. (laughs) And we make that part of ourselves into an object that's in some way, in some way it's separate from us, but what it actually is is we want it to be separate from us. We want to get rid of it. In either case, we find something to point our finger at and say, fix that, and the dukkha is gone. And very magically, sometimes we can fix something. (laughs) And the dukkha is gone, or seems to be gone, as, oh boy, done with that. But what we notice is that the dukkha comes back. Sometimes it comes back from exactly the same thing. You notice that? You know, somebody who really bugs you, someone who irritates you, and, and you, you do something, you make some change, um, or that other person makes some change, and you think it's done with, but it just comes back. And if we look into this, I think the conclusion that we can come to, and the conclusion certainly that the Buddha came to, is that it's not really that thing there that's causing my dukkha. The cause, the actual cause of the dukkha is, it's in here. It's in here. It's the very fact of wanting to get or wanting to get rid of. That's the dukkha. And it's that wanting to get or wanting to get rid of that has to change in order to end the dukkha. So the Buddha, in, in his first discourse, he goes through a whole list of, of things that we generally point to and say that's the cause of dukkha. And he points to birth, aging, sickness, death, not getting what I want, getting what I don't want. And then he, um, and then he adds on to the list separation from what we love separation from what we love or separation from what we want. And I think we can all recognize in our lives and as as therapists, psychologists, 
psychiatrists, social workers, you're all very well aware of the dukkha that comes from separation and loss. And I think the Buddha was very wise in kind of putting this after this list, and it, and it really highlights the, the pain, the, the dukkha of separation. And so question that hopefully comes is, why is there so much dukkha with separation? What is there in separation that causes so much dukkha? And this is, this is where the insight really begins to come in and begins to really shine a light on the actual cause of dukkha. What's really underlying dukkha? So we look at we look at we look at separation, loss, and we see what's what's the dukkha in here. What's what's causing the dukkha with this? that I hope arises is why is there dukkha? What's what's the cause of it? What underlies dukkha with separation? And maybe even underlying that is the question, what is separation? What is separation and loss? And one of, the, one, of the, one, of the underlying, one of the underlying conditions here that's giving rise to dukkha is the fact that in this separation or loss, there's change. It's change. And it's a change when it's separation from what we want or from who or what we love. There's a change that we don't like. It's a change that we don't like. And again, it comes back to that not liking. That not liking. It's, 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 it's interesting to look at, look at it. And, the, and this is one of, the, one of the key insights of the Buddha, that the Buddha spoke of so much. Just, it comes up just over and over and over and over again in the discourses. This fact of change, of impermanence. And it's something that we all know, at least intellectually. We know everything changes. And yet, we live our lives so much based on an assumption of not change. We live our lives on an assumption that we'll all still be here tonight and tomorrow morning. You know, each evening at the end of the day, I say, see you again in the morning. There's an assumption there. But in reality, I don't know that. I don't know that at all. It's certainly a wish, <laughs> a hope, but it's, it's an assumption. And, and, we, and we make assumptions like this all the time. We're constantly living based on assumptions like this. You know, the assumption that we're never going to run out of oil. 
the assumption that we can just keep living the way we've been living. The assumption that technology will fix problems. Yeah, just all the all these assumptions. The assumption that when I push the button, my computer will start. <laughs> we know it doesn't always. <laughs> and so the this 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 really awakening, the awakening to the fact of change and opening opening to change, opening to change in a way that when there is the separation or the loss, of course, we still feel the pain, we still feel the sorrow, we still feel the grief, but we don't get stuck in it because we know it will change. And we know that it's the outcome of change. To really understand, to really look into change and understand change is just so important for liberation. I could, I could talk the whole afternoon about change, <laughs> but I want to go on to a more important point, and I've only got about ten minutes left. <laughs> what underlies it all? The Buddha goes on after he talks about uh, the dukkha of of, of separation, he goes on and he makes a statement, and, and perhaps, you've, perhaps you've seen this statement, or Michael's told you about this statement. He goes on and he says, in summary, so he summarizes this whole list of, this whole list of causes of dukkha. He summarizes it all. He says, in summary, dukkha is this being, this body-mind, Fueled by clinging. Fueled by clinging. And I'll try and explain this a little bit. This, this body-mind, this, this, basically it's, it's taking this self-identity and clinging to it. It's creating a self-identity and then holding on to it and fixing it, fixing it in the sense of making it solid and permanent. And it's not just doing that, but believing that's the truth. <laughs> believing that's how it is. And the insight, the insight that comes with investigation in this, with real investigation into this question of what really is this body-mind? Who is this, this body-mind, this being sitting here that's called Norman by some people? called other things by some people too. But what, what is this being that's called Norman? And look and see. It's a body and it's a mind. How does dukkha arise out of that? How does dukkha arise out of that? And it, and it arises out of the whole nature of how our relationship to ourself and the world is formed. And our relationship to ourself and our world is formed through our contacts through the sense doors. So because we have a body, we have sense doors. We have eyes, ears, nose, mouth, tongue, uh, touch. And we have a mind that thinks about things. So we can see things, we can hear things, we can smell things, we can taste things, we can touch things, and we can think about things. And this is how we 
how we know, how we experience, how we relate to the world. Right? Anyone disagree with that? No? Okay. So how does this work? What's, what's happening? What's happening here? How does this relation form? So airplane goes by. <laughs> airplane goes by. Engine's turning. It's moving through the air. Things are vibrating in it. And all these things that are happening in the airplane are creating waves that move through the air and hit our ears. And we're just sitting here trying to talk and trying to listen. And these waves are all coming and they hit the ear. And when they hit the ear, the sounds are heard. Right? We hear the sounds. We hear the sounds. This, this, this contact and this hearing, and in, in the Buddhist terminology, and maybe Michael's gone into this with you also, and maybe you know it from, from other retreats, other teachings, this, this bare fact, this bare process of hearing is referred to in the, in the, in the, the language as consciousness. It's the, that knowing of something. Consciousness is the knowing of something. So the, the knowing of, of, of sound is hearing consciousness. Okay? So hearing consciousness arises, so the knowing of the sound arises out of the contact of the body and the object that's vibrating. Okay? And if we look closely, we see that this hearing arises as a natural response to that contact, that coming together. What happens with that coming together in that, in, that, in that moment of contact and in that consciousness, a couple of things happen. One thing quickly, one thing that happens is what the, the Buddha referred to as feeling. Feeling. And in this context, feeling doesn't have anything to do with emotions. Nothing whatsoever to do with emotions. It's simply a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So when I hear that sound, what arises is either it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that feeling is, to a large extent, influenced and shaped by another thing that's going on at the same time, which the Buddha referred to as perception. And perception has a number of different aspects to it. One aspect of perception is memory. So through memory, it influences the feeling. Okay? Feeling also influences the, uh, the, the perception in a way. But they, so the, the one aspect of, of perception is memory. Another aspect of perception is that through the memory, it recognizes the sound and it says airplane. It gives it a name. And the other thing that it does is it places the sound and the airplane out there. Okay? It places it out there. So what so the sound that has arisen because of a contact is then perceived and, and actually the sound, you know, the way the way the body mind works, the sound is actually being created here in the ear and in the mind. 
But perception says, no, it's out there. It's a perception in placing the airplane and the sound out there at the same time is thinking, well, if it's out there, there must be someone who's hearing it. And so while it's creating that airplane and the sound out there, it's also separating out me here, hearing it there. And perception creates a separation in what actually arose out of a coming together. The separation is just the perception. In the moment of hearing that, in the moment of hearing that sound and saying airplane and I'm hearing the airplane, in that moment, who I was, who I was, was being created dependent on in relationship to that sound and the airplane. The sound comes, the airplane's there, I'm sitting and listening, and as I'm listening, I am that airplane. I'm not separate from it. Because that sound is creating me in that moment. It's making me who I, who I am in that moment. Airplane passes, I start talking again, I look out, I see you. Who I am in that moment is dependent on and in relationship to whoever I happen to notice. So who we are, who we are is changing from moment to moment to moment to moment, dependent on the contacts. Dependent on the contacts. And the knowing, the knowing of this, the knowing of this is the understanding of anatta, of not-selfness. Anatta, or not-selfness, doesn't mean no self. It's not a denial or a rejection or a negation of this body-mind that's sitting here. It's just saying, yes, there is this self, but this self is not separate from whatever it happens to be contacting in any given moment. Anatta is about, it's not about no self, it's about relationship, it's about intimacy, it's about connection. And the way our brains have been conditioned, we have so strongly conditioned our left brain, which is the part of the brain that perceives the separation. And we have so neglected the right brain, which knows connection, that we believe the perception of separation to be how it is. And we live based on that. And so when we, when we feel separation, it's unpleasant. 
I don't like it. I want that thing back. I want that person back. I can't bear losing that. It's based on that perception. When I'm, when I'm thinking about that person who I've lost, when I'm thinking about, just the fact of thinking about that person shows that that person is still very much with me. It's very present with me. Of course, there's a physical separation, but what do I actually mean by separation? Where is the separation? Where is the loss? The liberation comes with this understanding, this understanding of connection, of relationship, of non-separateness, and the, and the implication of impermanence that goes along with it. The understanding of impermanence that goes along with it. And we put these two together, and where's the dukkha? When we really open to and understand and deeply know impermanence and live from that knowing, when we really deeply know and understand connection and non-separateness, where's the place for dukkha? And in that knowing, in that knowing of the, the, the absence of separateness, knowing that that separateness is just a perception, we know the connection, we know the relationship, we know the intimacy, then there's the space for metta. There is metta. It's not just the space for it. There is metta. Just as we wish for ourselves, we wish for all others. Fifteen more seconds. <laughs> so, so very important, I think, very important to, to explore, to explore the, the relationship of metta and insight and to, and to really see how the, the cultivation of one very much supports the cultivation of the other. And we bring the two together and the potential, the potential for, for liberating insight is unlimited. And it can happen in any moment. So please make use of this retreat. Make use of this time. It's, it's, it's an opportunity that is so rare in our lives. To make use of this time, to really settle and really take interest, take interest in life in this moment. To look into it and see how it is. And be free and no boundless metta. So let's just sit quietly for a couple of minutes.